Welcome to Joy's podcast series, Live Curiously. My name is David Hellquist. Born in Sweden, I've lived in London for almost 20 years, working with magazines and newspapers as a writer, editor and stylist. I also run Document Studios, a creative content agency producing editorial and alternative storytelling for global fashion brands. Having worked with Joy on projects in the past, they now have kindly asked me to explore fashion, culture and the people who continue to inspire us through this podcast series. Over the course, I will meet some of London's most creative minds in fashion, music, media and sportswear today to find out how they've managed to stay curious and connected throughout their careers. In this episode, I'll be talking to Trevor Jackson, the musician, producer, graphic designer and former record label owner. In a day and age when the term polymorph is banded about quite generously, a bit like the word iconic, it's refreshing to meet people who've helped define its meaning, at least when it comes to the 21st century creative music scene in London. If not under his own name, Trevor has released music as Playgroup, Underdog and Skull. And between 1996 and 2006, he ran the record label Output Recordings. Trevor released music from the likes of LCD Sound System, The Rapture, Soulwax, Fortet, Blackstrobe and many, many more. Some of these artists are mainstream names by now, whereas others are long gone but still tentpole names for the state of music at that specific time and place. Trevor also designed the record sleeves for many of those bands. And though his visual output is maybe not as loud as his audio legacy, it certainly looks good. Since the connection between music and fashion is as close to symbiotic as it can be, Trevor's work and his aesthetic has often been picked up by designers and brands. Sometimes that's through him working on catwalk soundtracks, sometimes through Trevor making prints for Stone Island, and more recently, a t-shirt collection for the London store Goodhood. Over the last few years, Trevor has released all his archive music from a creative career spanning 30 years through two albums, Format and System, as a sort of self-retrospective vendetta with himself. But his most current medium and platform is his bi-weekly two-hour radio show on the web station NTS. Under his Music for Sick Minds and Warm Hearts tagline, Trevor gets to do what he loves the most, discovering and playing new music that excites him. So, welcome to the podcast, Trevor. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. Uh, let's start very general. Let's say you just bump into someone on the street and they weirdly ask you what you do. How do you describe what you do? Depends who I meet. Right. I try and keep the, the main thing that comes in my head, I say to myself, don't even mention that I do any DJing because that is the one thing that gets people most excited. Okay. It's correct. Like literally, it doesn't matter who you meet. I've met people who like... I highly respect, and you mentioned you're a DJ. Like, oh, my, you, you're a DJ? Yeah, you know, I'm an art director, a designer, I make music, I produce, do radio show, I do loads of different things. So you know. that, that's that's amazing. So a DJ's job really is to play other people's music, essentially. Yeah. But you actually make music yourself, and what they focus on is you playing other people's music. I think that the DJ lifestyle, something that I've spent my entire life trying to reject, is so glamorous. And is so pre-Instagram, it's a highly desirable lifestyle that people seem to fawn at DJs for some reason. Mm. And um, yeah, I, I suppose that's it. For me, it's, I love it. And I've been doing it for a long, long time. But it's the least important thing I do. I mean, I love the concept of curating music. Yeah. I adore that. And I do a, a regular fortnightly radio show, which yeah. is now, is like my, is how I DJ now. But I don't have, a, I don't have an audience in front of me. I can yeah. play what I want, whereas... Club DJing is a very, very 
different thing. It's interesting that we've already talked about you DJing because that's something I want to come back to later on. But have your job description changed much over the years? I literally, apart from the fact I now have a child, my life is exactly the same as it's been since I was 18 years old. I mean, I'm very fortunate that I've balanced the different mediums, albeit audiovisual things, since I was very young, pre-computer. Mm. I pretty much always tell, tell people I do the same thing. What about the making music, though? Is yeah. that you would sort of say is dearest to you, like your first love? Uh, the music, the presence of music in my life, in most people's lives, it, it's a primal thing, music, right? Mm -hmm. So I probably adore most at the moment. I enjoy doing design most, right? It's considered practice. I adore the process of doing it. It's very cerebral. It's a considered practice. Music to me is a far more expressive thing. Mm. I've spent a long time actually making music, which is very considered and kind of conceptual. And now I'm trying to do things which are more performance-based. So it's more expressive, you know. Right. I've never seen myself per se as being a commercial artist necessarily. I'm not an illustrator. So my practice is far more considered. So they're, they're two very different things, you know. But I suppose I'm lucky to be able to do both of them because they balance each other out quite well. But when you say expressive, do you mean like, do you fancy getting back into playing live music? No, no, I've never really played live. Right. You know, my process of making music now is switching on machines, physical machines, and just mucking around. When I talk about being expressive, it's just a completely different thought process for me. I don't sit in front of my computer and my design work isn't so expressive because it's because it's highly considered also my my design work is commercial i have a brief to work to whereas my music is purely expressive because i sit down and i like i just play around so it's more personal it. right like you know for for you the way that you make music today could you say it's just for yourself really it always has been i, I mean i've never really made music for anyone else but myself in an ideal world, everything I did could be expressive. I live in London. I have bills to pay. Yeah. So I have to get commercial working, yeah. you know? Back to the music bit. Did you listen to music every single day? Of course. That's a silly question, right? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Not for everyone. But, but for you, it's, 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 it's a natural part of, I of your day. Music is like, it's like air. Right. I couldn't imagine my life without music. You know, I'm old. So to me, music isn't wallpaper. It isn't transient kind of background music. It's an intrinsic part of my life. So technical aspect of that, like I'm just interested in how you consume music, what sort of platforms or mediums do you use using on your phone? Does it have to be like vinyl no, in your I, flat? I, no, I mean, I'm not, a, you know, I did a project about formats. I'm not a snob about musical formats. So I have like 50,000 plus records, vinyl records. Oh, wow. But I have probably have 20,000 CDs. I listen to Spotify I'm probably quite weird because I listen to Spotify and if I like something, I then go and buy it. That's, that's a small percentage of Spotify audience does that. But now I, I listen to music on, you know, yeah, music yeah. is with me all the time. I'm asking because like, me personally, like I listen to majority of my music when I'm going somewhere, you know, on my phone. It's just me and the music. As you mentioned, you have a kid now as well. And, you know, like it, it changes your day and your kind of schedule. I mean, I, I wake up in the morning, I listen to breakfast radio. I travel to work. I listen to music when I'm walking to work. I have to work with music on. Mm. The only time I don't listen to music is maybe when I get home at night, you know. I wasn't being condescending when it's, it's a silly question, but it's kind of like such a major part of me. Yeah, you know? I understand. If we go back a bit in time and, and, you know, look at like when you grew up and what was the sort of the pop cultural landscape like when you were a kid? When I was a kid, it was driven by Top of the Pops on TV. So Thursday nights for half an hour. 
every Thursday night, I'd watch Top of the Pops with my sister. So I'd get my music from there. I'd listen to the radio, Radio One. Then when I got a bit older, I started listening to John Peel in the evening. Mm. So I started to be introduced to more experimental music. But the first concert I ever went to was the Human League, their tour in 81 or 82. So I, I kind of the music that I first embraced was, I suppose, early electronic, be it Soft Cell, Human League, Craftwork. Mm. So those were the bands that kind of defined your youth? A hundred percent. Yeah, they defined my youth. The teenage years was all about hip hop, but my youth was about electronic music. How old were you and what year was that when you discovered hip hop? Well, I did, discovered hip hop through Malcolm McLaren, through right. Buffalo Gals. I can't remember when Buffalo Gals came out, but yeah, I remember seeing the video on, I probably saw it on Top of the Pops, or I heard it on Kid Jensen, who, which was a show before John Peel, and that was my introduction to hip hop. And McLaren played a huge part in exposing the world to... Mm. So John Peel, just for everyone, is a very influential yeah, John Peel UK was a, DJ. He, he was a radio DJ on every weekday evening from, I think, 10 to 12, who would play everything and anything. And he spoke his mind, dry sense of humor, and um, was hugely important in curating and starting many bands that went on to be huge. But not only that, he was also probably like, key for a big part of the British sort of teenage audience. Because it was on so late, yeah. I wasn't the only person I would hide under my bed covers with a little handheld mono radio to my ear, listening to John Peel like every night. Right. You know, and I was had to be up for school at six o'clock, but I'd be up till 12 listening to John Peel every night. And that was, it was probably one of the only places where you could hear alternative music. You know? Like at that time, did you go to gigs or did you prefer clubs? I went to gigs. I mean, I went to loads of gigs, but I went to clubs as well. From the age of like 13, 14, my friends, older friends, sneaked me into the Camden Palace, mm. which back then was a big deal. So you, you grew up in London? Yeah, I grew up in the suburbs in Edgware, North London. Between 14 and I lived at home till I was 20, maybe 21, I was going to clubs four or five times a week. Would you say that at that time in London, the gig scene was healthier than the club scene there were very okay the clubs you've got to think then the club scene was very split so you had mainstream discos right or you had underground clubs there wasn't much in the middle most people on a saturday night would go to the pub for a drink the club scene was small okay cannon palace was a big club but a lot of the other clubs i was going to there was small you know there was probably only a group of a less than a thousand people going to an amount of clubs in London, which were at that time really mixed racially, gender-wise, and fed on art, music, fashion. It was, mm. it was a strong culture. And this was way before clubs became an industry. It was a very different thing. And, and Camden, was that an epicenter for these things? Or was it just really that club? No, because no, you had the Electric Ballroom as well. There's a club called Electric Ballroom where Jay Strongman and people would play. And that was, from what I remember, the club is like, one room was like a rockabilly Thing. And the other room was kind of more, they played more hip hop and bits of electronic stuff. Camden Market was a big draw. I mean, it was nothing like now. Now it's been destroyed. But Camden Market, you, you had Kensington Market, you had Kings Road and Camden Town. They were the three places where people would hang out. It was a very alternative place, wasn't it? I mean, not just for music. Or Camden. But yes, for everything, really. Like fashion, music, culture. Yeah, it was a subculture. Yeah, definitely. It was the kind of place you went to if you didn't sort of fit into West End or... Because back then, like East London wasn't what it was today. The thing is, from the age of 18, I had a studio in Clerkenwell. I've been based in East London since the late 80s. Right. When you say studio, was that for your design work or for your music? Yeah, I left art college and I started designing record sleeves very early. And this was in the late 80s. So I ended up working with loads of small house labels and hip hop labels. And that's kind of where I cut my teeth, design work. 
Was it a case of you wanting to design and then happened to be into music and then thought, why don't I combine the two? Okay, so I was obsessed by music, by music and comic books. And through comic books, I kind of got into graphic design. I was really into a lot of illustrators from Brussels and clean line kind of French what they call BD stuff. And it was very kind of graphic. I was into Marvel comics as well and Raw magazine as well, Art Spiegelman and Raw New York magazine. So the alternative kind of illustrators and cartoonists. But then I worked in a record shop and music was so important to me. But then my introduction to graphic design properly was through record sleeves. Mm. So something like Peter Savile's Confusion Sleeve for New Order really blew my brains in terms of print techniques, what you could do with type, with color. And then with the, you know, same with the Power Corruption and Lies album, the Blue Monday Sleeve. Mm. At that point, I was like, wow, this kind of joins all the dots for me. Mm. So for me, designing record covers and being involved in design and music, that was fundamental. I knew that's, Part of me wanted to be a comic book illustrator, but the other part of me wanted to design record covers. And so that's what I did. I've never really heard of you talking about comics before. Is that something you're into today as well? Yeah, not so many. I don't necessarily read superhero comics anymore, but I still have a big passion for comic books. Yeah. And animations. Yes. I think it's interesting, you know, you talk about like the Blue Monday cover uh, as an example. You could look at that as a piece of artwork as well, I suppose. But at the same time, like designing record sleeves, instead of it being hung on a wall in a gallery, yeah. it's actually bought by loads and loads of people and, you know, consumed, looked at, interacted with in their homes. Are you, are you into that, shall we call it, democratic aspect? Uh, my attitude has changed because... My early work was inspired by comic books and video games. So I was designing sleeves for Todd Terry, Pal Joey, Frankie Bones. I did like S-Express single cover, which went to number one. So one of the first record covers I ever did was a number one record. And then it was, for me, I was quite anarchic. I remember going to, even though I love Peter Savile, I, I went to a, some association of music industry designers meeting. And I kind of was a bit cheeky to him, kind of like, you know, you're just an old man. All you lot are just kind of like... You don't really know what you're doing. You don't go to clubs. I kind of had that attitude, even though I secretly adored him. Yeah. I had attitude. And for me, it was about designing for the people. I was literally going out, getting wasted. And then the next morning or that night, going to my studio and designing record sleeves for the records I'd heard the night before. Right. And it had nothing to do with art. It had nothing to do with the idea of it being in a gallery. Even now, to be honest with you, I feel a bit weird about you know, the rave exhibition at um, the Saatchi Gallery. It, it leaves a kind of odd taste in my mouth but no I, I never saw it as that now I can you know I can reflect upon these things in particular Peter's work mm. as being very unique in that way Peter Savile in many ways defines that doesn't he like you know taking good music and good design and putting yeah, it together yeah but then Peter's an odd one because you know you, you know the story of like unknown pleasures you never listen to the record you know Peter's a bit of an anomaly in that way mm. Yeah, that for me, I, I can't design anything for music without, I'm directly inspired by the music. I listen to the music. The most inspiring thing I ever saw as a teenager was Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And to me, that linked sound and light together and colour. And that went on you know, a, a huge journey for me. Mm. Um, and so those things to me, the link between sound and vision is intrinsic in everything I do. Yeah. And it's fed, you know, so many things I do. I mean, I, I, I understand that completely. And I think on that note, the Peter Savile note, his approach is just different. It doesn't you know? take away from the, the greatness of his work, but it's a very different take. And sometimes it makes me feel a bit like, ah. but Peter's anarchic in his own way. I think it summarizes, if nothing else, you and your approach. For you, the sign and the music, they belong together. There has to be a connection between the two. Otherwise, what's the point, right? I did an interview with um, Ian Anderson from Designers Republic. And he's the same thing as I don't listen to the record. I just speak to the artist. 
find out what they're into and I do my thing. And I work very differently. For me, when I work with people, I try and get into their heads, but I want to try and do something that directly relates to them. And you know. But I think you can tell that, you know, you are a musician and a designer. In this case, you can see it from both sides, right? That's Yeah, yeah, yeah. That probably explains it. So if we then look at... You know, you making music. I just think it interesting when you look up, actually, if you go into Wikipedia and you read about Trevor Jackson and Playgroup, it describes yeah. it as a dance act. To be honest with you, people write their own Wikipedia pages. I've never even looked at my Wikipedia page. So it's probably incorrect. The thing is, I've done so many things. I'm now at a point in my life, I'm like, you know what? I might as well start showing off a little bit. But most of my life, I've been embarrassed. I come from a culture and a generation where talking about yourself is the most dickish thing to do. Mm. Like we're sitting here, I'm more interested in you than I am in myself, mm. right? So I don't, talking about myself, I can ramble for ages, but for me, it's embarrassing. For me, I love the idea of people discovering what I do, mm. but actually me talking about it and bragging about it is humiliating. But I think, I mean, first of all, actually why I mentioned that was more of a pigeonholing yeah, question, yeah. but also I think, again, that makes complete sense because a lot of what you do today related to your radio show is about listening to new, exciting music, right? And I imagine, though I haven't heard every episode of your NTS show, but I imagine you don't play much of your own stuff. So, I've never played. I think I've played one of my tracks in there, six years. Yeah, there you go. So that makes complete sense. But what was the sort of the catalyst in all of this then, going back to, you know, wherever we are now on the timeline, but what was the sort of the catalyst that made you want to make your own music? The catalyst was probably listening to The Art of Noise. Well, listening to early hip-hop and The Art of Noise and discovering sampling. I never saw myself as a musician. I never learned an instrument. But I was like, wow, you can sample a sound and you can make your own stuff with it. So I can't, I don't know when that was, but at some point in the 80s, I bought myself a sample and I started playing with sampling. And I was at college studying design, graphic design. And to me, the aesthetic of collage it was sound collage to me. So I knew I could do that. And that's really how I got into making music on, you know, but it was via hip hop and, and hip hop and Trevor Horn and the Art of Noise. London at that time. Yeah. I wasn't here yeah. at that specific time, but what was the kind of like, through who yeah. did the hip hop come into London? Well, I said Malcolm McLaren, Buffalo Girls, via fashion, via Vivian Westwood, by World's End, right? So that was one, on one side there was that. Yeah. There were the clubs. So you had Mark Moore, Jay Strong, the Mud Club, you had warehouse parties happening. For me, most importantly, Tim Westwood. Right. So Tim Westwood, he was on LWR, maybe. Also a radio DJ. He did hip-hop jams. So he did live things with, with bands coming over from America. Mm. And also my cat. There were, there were a couple of hip-hop DJs on the radio that were very influential. And, you know, hip-hop was massive in London. In Covent Garden, there were crews breakdancing. Take a long time to talk about all of it. But from yeah, yeah. new romantic music into electro music, which is inspired by new romantic music, so Playgroup came around 2001. Yeah. What was the sort of the music landscape, music scene like in London by then? I was making hip hop before that, right? So I was inspired by hip hop. I made loads of hip hop records, had a hip hop label. But hip hop started becoming more aggressive, more competitive. Lyrically, it was becoming highly misogynistic, racist. I didn't want to be part of it anymore. So I stepped away from hip hop. I started a new label called Output which was a label for freaks, a label basically for artists that couldn't get signed anywhere else, music that I loved and I didn't care if anyone else liked it. That kind of, the music was strange and weird and what was happening outside of that, there was a lot of dance music, but most of it was quite pretentious, no vocals or it was like Progressive House, which bored the hell out of me. It was quite laddie, kind of boys only, flying records, which was kind of almost like football hooligans that got into house music through taking ease and I didn't want to be part of that because these people 
Now they wanted to hug me and before they wanted to beat me up. And I didn't hear any dance music that had any personality to me. It was either, like I say, Diva singing Baby I Love You, bullshit lyrics, mm. or no lyrics at all. It's just boring music. So I wanted to create something which took inspiration from the 80s. All the bands I love, Talking Heads, Tom Tom Club, ESG, Liquid Liquid, Grace Jones, stuff which then, I've said it before, but people laughed at that music. You know, people were not interested in the late 1990s, early 2000s. People would laugh at me for saying Soft Cell were my favorite band. And I'd say, Soft Cell, they're the beginning of techno. Memorabilia is the first techno record. People are like, what are you talking about? They had no idea. And that's why I started Playgroup. So Playgroup was meant to be a live-esque kind of dance project, which I kind of sample based, but I had live instruments on it and got guest vocalists in. And mm. it was just meant to be a party record, not a club record. It was the antithesis of super clubs with cream and all these kind of things. It was meant to be a house party, the best house party you've ever been to. But that's actually how I remember it. I remember it as a happy tune. It was up. I mean, yeah, it was kind of meant to be sexy and dark. And kind of fun, yeah. If you were to write music today, yeah, would it be as upbeat? I've done so many different projects. Most of the time, I've tried to make music which I felt I'm not hearing anywhere else. That's kind of impossible now because there's so much incredible music of all different genres. Me sitting down and thinking, what's missing? I can't really do that anymore. All my past projects have been pretty much about trying to do something I didn't hear before that, you mm. know. But I create super dark music. You know, there's many strings to my, my musical bows. I'm just wondering about yeah. the relationship between, you know, moods and music. There is the old old saying, or it's a question rather, if you listen to pop music because you're sad or if you're sad because you listen to pop music. The music I make has been at many points expressive. Playgroup as a project was very conceptual. So I pretty much planned it all out beforehand. I didn't write the tracks, but I thought I want to have one track like this, one track like that. It was very considered. It wasn't expressive. But I was in a good frame of mind at that point. Life was good. Going out every night, it was a fun time. That's reflected in the music. At the same time, I've done other projects which have been really fucking dark. And they've been at dark periods of my life. I actually find it very hard to listen to a lot of my music because, I mean, I did a radio show this week. Cherry Stones, who I played with, played some remix I did from like 20 years ago. And I remember how I felt. I literally remember being in the studio really upset about something, making that track. It took me right back to it. There are definitely moments in time for me. Mm. Mood directly does relate to my attitude when I'm making music, 100%. You mentioned, you know, new music. What about your attitude towards new music coming out today? Because you play a lot of that on, on your show. I'm a, I mean, I've spent most of my life trying to bring into focus either artists or labels or movements of music that I feel have been underappreciated, that are important, be that industrial music, be that 80s compass point there's various points i've thought why aren't people talking about this mm. so i've tried to expose that and tried to, through compilations or through djing trying to bring that music through but now right now is the best time there's ever been for new music really 100 yeah. because it's so easy to make music and that means there's a lot of crap but at the same time there's so much good music and i'm in terms of when the bottom fell out the music industry it stopped people like a lot of people make music because they make music try to make music they think other people want, mm. right? 10, 15 years ago, you could listen to a top house record and think, that's popular. I want to make music. I'm going to make something like that because I know it'd be a big record. And there's a good chance if you make something similar, it could be a big record. Now, because it's very hard to make a living, you don't have to do that. So you've got people thinking, I'm never going to make a living out of this. I'll do anything I want. Mm. So this week particularly, I was playing music. And for me, there's an incredible mix of genres going on. You can listen to bass music, hip-hop, techno house, experiment. There's a thread through them. I've never felt that connection between you hear a hip-hop track and you think that person has been listening to Drexia or has been listening to 
Arthur Russell or has been listening to, you know, you hear it in the music. Everyone's ears are open through YouTube, through Spotify. They can hear anything. And that's coming out now in the music. And I think it's a hugely exciting time for music. Mm. Sonically, maybe not for artists and for personalities and for songs, mm. but that's going to come next, you know. At the moment, it's about people exploring and experimenting with sound. And it's the best it's ever been. It's interesting you say this because, you know, when, when, when you listen to the show, I feel it sounds like you're playing for yourself, you know, just into the idea of, of like finding this but music. The thing is, like, you know, as, as a DJ, you get sent music, right? I ignore most of the promos I get because I'm like, you know, why? I don't want to promote someone that other people know. I try and dig for, for artists that no one's heard of. For me, I don't want to have a label anymore because it's a pain in the ass. You have to deal with managers, artists, distributors. It's a nightmare having a label. But for me, having a radio show is like having a record label. So it's pretty much like I can showcase music to people, but I don't have to have any other commitment other than playing it and promoting it. As for playing for myself, I do. I mean, the NTS studio is tiny. Mm. It's an eighth the size of this room. Yeah. And it's me and my producer, and I'm staring at a brick wall playing. And I do get in the zone. There's no excuse now for DJs playing the same music. I just play what I like. Mm. And hopefully people like it. If they don't like it, I don't really care. You know, we talked about earlier on, you playing music privately for yourself yeah. at home or whatever you are. Like, if you compare that to what you play on the show, yeah. is it a similar music and has it got the same ratio between old and new? No, probably hasn't. At home, I end up listening to, I listen to reggae most of the time. I don't smoke weed anymore, but I just listen to dub reggae a lot. And if the baby loves it, yeah, I find it relaxing. I do this show every two weeks and I spend a good couple of days searching for stuff. My DJ sets are directly related to my radio show now. For some time, it was quite different. I got sucked into a kind of world of DJing I didn't want to be part of. But now I feel I've got back to a stage where I can play the kind of music live or in a DJ set that I play on the radio. But that stuff is, is specifically part of that part of my life. But then again, the radio show is diverse. You know, I play melodic, I play songs. So some of it does creep into my everyday life, but a lot of it is just trying to push people and trying to irritate people and trying to surprise people and trying to piss people off. That's kind of well, what the show's about. I was going to say, maybe the good thing with the radio show is that you can't clear a dance floor, but it sounds like you enjoy that. A hundred percent. That's what it's about. You know, the thing is, I don't play so much. I don't see myself as being a great DJ because I actually have a lot of disdain for the culture of DJing, right? But I'm not scared to clear a dance floor because a good DJ, for me, there's dynamics to a DJ, right? I don't take drugs. I've never really been into drugs at all. It's just smoke weed, but that's it. And so for me, going to hear a DJ and just hearing in the constantly the same tempo and a perfect blend of stuff that sounds pretty similar, I couldn't think of anything more boring. Mm. So I like to have ups and downs and clearing a dance floor or playing something which throws people off and then the dynamics of bringing something in after that which blows people away, that's really powerful. For me, having those dynamics is what a good DJ does. The ups and downs. The ups and downs, it works. Yeah. Done in the right way. It's yeah. quite powerful. Mm. My radio show is pretty much like a, the equivalent of clearing a dance floor, but for two hours. Yeah. New music, uh, going back to that, what was, what's your biggest critique of it? You've already touched on this, but the technology, if it's just a good thing or if it can be a bad thing, because look at, look at photographers yeah. who spent the last decade yeah. complaining about digital and now everyone's a photographer. Yeah. And, and you've already sort of said that today, if you want to, everyone's a producer. You know, everybody's, everybody's everything now. Right, exactly. So is th- that's what I meant. But, you know? no, but then for me, the results don't matter. It's your intention. That's the only thing that matters. I look at Instagram and see design on Instagram and it's kind of like, it's good, I, but I don't know what's behind it. I'd rather, I'd rather hear from someone that's trying to do something for the right reasons 
than see a good result. It's why you take part that matters. Right. You know, I'm always into naivety in music. So when I had a record label, a lot of the artists I sound, I got their demos. And I'm like, we're putting the demo out. We're not going to redo it. Because whenever you try and redo a demo, it's never as good as a demo. And the roughness, the rawness, capturing that moment in time. And it goes back to being expressive. Most artists, you listen to their first recordings, they're their best recordings. And that to me is part of it. So now in the whole of all creative mediums, I actually think results in some ways don't matter anymore because anyone can do something that looks good. If it doesn't look or sound good, you've got to be seriously stupid. Well, if you have all life just to sort of redo something until it's perfect, that kind of takes... Perfection's over. boring. Yeah. And, perfection and, is... You know, and it, actually, imperfection is interesting. Yeah, but now in itself, imperfection's become its own aesthetic, you know? Yeah. In a way. So, albeit that through music, now you can get plugins that degenerate things that make it sound like it's from tape or you get filters for photography. I'm glad, I'm blessed that I started doing what I did like 30 odd years ago. I don't know how I'd start now. Hmm. Do you have a point where, you know, we talk about old and new music. Yeah. Right. What's the cutoff point? When, <laughs> when did old become new? Yesterday. Yesterday. Yeah. Definitely yesterday. That's a very, very NTS answer. Is it? I don't know. I mean, but it sounds like, again, just going back to like your show. That's no, but, no, because, like... because I can say literally my show I do every fortnight. Yeah. In that fortnight, I go in there with 250 tracks that I've found that in a fortnight and I only get to play 50 of them. There's that amount of good music. It's just mind boggling. That's you know? insane. It's, it, it is insane. Yeah. And that's how it is right now. There's people all over the world making really interesting experimental music, you know? What about authenticity? Is that a problem? I mean, I found this old quote of yours. Uh, uh oh, from, uh-oh, I know. <laughs> no, it's a good one. From an old uh, interview, and you say, there hasn't been a true youth movement since rave. People are transient. They jump on one thing and then move on to the next. I think it's quite sad. Yeah, but I probably said that before grime. I probably said that a decade ago. And now I'd say that the grime scene is massively important. Mm-hmm. So essentially what you're saying, grime is a true youth movement. 100%. Yeah, yeah. Personally, I think hip hop is probably the most powerful youth cultural movement in terms of the way that it combines music, art, fashion, so many different mediums, right? The aesthetic of rave was very inspired by Summer of Love, by Psychedelia, by, you know, so whereas hip hop I found to be in many ways completely unique. I can't dismiss rave because as a political movement, it was highly important. Again, I've been fortunate. I've lived through all these musical movements, these youth movements, and I'm not young anymore. But I'd say that definitely from what you see from grime is it's hugely important. There's a strong political edge to grime as well. Massively. I mean, it genuinely came from the streets. Some of my friends were just adored it from the beginning. I didn't quite understand it. I didn't quite get it at the beginning. I'd be lying to say I did because for me, UK hip hop had a very specific sound. So I heard a lot of these early MCs. I'm like, they can't rap. Their flow's terrible. Their lyrics are... I mean, I still think, if I'm honest with you, a lot of grime artists have lyrics, like even Stormzy, I, you know, it's kind of, I respect him politically as an artist, but his lyrics, like Vossy Bop track, mm. it's just about, you know, it's yeah. about bollocks. You know? But I suppose in a way, like what you just said, like, oh, you didn't really get grime to start with, that actually just makes your point. Because, you know, youth movements aren't for everyone. It's meant to be like for a... Yeah, yeah, a specific demographic, without yeah. a doubt. Which is what makes them genuine. You're talking about authenticity yeah. at the beginning. I mean... It's a tough one now, right? We live in a fake world, right? But intentions are what it's all about, why you create something. Mm. Going back to that, and that gives things longevity and integrity to me. 
So over the last few years, you've, you've released a lot of archive music. Yep. System formats. Yeah. Names of the albums. So th- there isn't, there's an element of nostalgia to you as well. No, there's an element of getting rid of the past. Right. I used to make a track a day, a couple of tracks a day. I've always balanced between these different careers. And through living in London, I've had to be driven by earning a living. So I've been sucked into or distracted into work that I love, but into doing commercial projects. And that means that the music has often been put to one side because, you know, with the introduction of digital music, the chance of earning money doing alternative music bottomed out, Mm. right? Yeah. I basically got to a point, I had so much old music, it was just building up and building up that I had to say stop. And I, I stopped making music for a long time and I hated everything I'd done. But then on reflection, maybe it was about, I think it was when I hit a specific age that I thought, you know what, I need to put the past behind me. I had a hard drive with probably a thousand tracks on it and just cathartically I went through all of them and finished off the good ones. And I had to get them, release them and get them out. Still, I've got a storage room three times as big as this room full of stuff. I've spent the past decade trying to get rid of my past and I still can't do it. I'm bogged down with so much stuff in my head, in my hard drive, you know, physical things. And I'm trying to get rid of the past. I want to have a life which is slimmed down and I only have things that are essential. Mm. Musically, I've done it now. I don't have any music left. I've literally haven't made a new track for so long. And I don't have any old music left, which is great. Can you describe that sense of, of relief when you released the last of those two albums? It was, it was just an incredibly sensual sense of relief. But that was short-lived. The sense of relief soon disappeared and I'm back in the hole again, sadly. Well, it's a difference between tracks you've made and, and T-shirts you own, I suppose. I'm emotionally attached to things I've made. They were like little children, yeah. Yeah. I put so much into what I do. Once I've done it, I'm really emotionally attached to those things and I normally hate them. I didn't care what people thought of them because I had spent a long time getting them finished. So as long as I'm happy, that's my mantra in life. As long as I'm happy with what I'm doing, I really don't care what anyone else thinks. Mm. I don't do things to have likes. I don't even do anything to be liked. You know, that's not my remit. I mm. don't care. You were lucky then because people did like them. Did you get any negative feedback on it? No, I mean, when I did format, you know, I did it with Vinyl Factor. I did a massive, ex- did you mm. see the show? Okay. The truth is I did a whole installation around it because I didn't have confidence in the music. I really thought if I put the music out by itself, it's not enough. So I had to do something else to distract from the fact that maybe the music wasn't very good. Looking back, I actually think it was a fucking great record. And I'm actually maybe did the wrong thing because the music didn't get enough attention because people were looking at the whole project. But... Oh, it's, it, when people like what I do, it feels good, but I don't ever do it to be liked, you know? Mm. Okay, so let's talk about the, the visual aspect to music. You've, we've talked about you designing and art direction and, how you, and also how you got into sort of designing record sleeves. But, you know, when you did output recordings and you released music, a lot of them, I'm, I'm not sure how many of those bands did you get to do the visuals as well with? 95% of them. Right. By choice, you well, no, of- I pretty much, if I'm honest, I told people, I set up the label so I could just make sleeves. I had ideas like the first Fridge album, which is Kieran Hebden Fortet, and it was called C-Fax. I always wanted to do an album which was blank, so it had a white booklet, 24-page book with nothing on it. I had concept for sleeves I wanted to do before I, I even heard the record, which is actually going back to what I said, Peter Savile, maybe I did the wrong thing. They weren't designed around the, around the music necessary, but I set up output as an ex- as a way for me because also at the time I was ending up doing commercial work for people I didn't like mm. so it was great to be able to do things myself 
But I suppose the difference between you and Savile in that sense is that if you had the idea, you waited till the right record came oh, along. Oh, without a doubt, yeah, yeah. With, I mean, you heard the C facts, it suited them, yeah, it made sense together, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. So you you can combine the idea with the artist and it sort of made complete sense. And the other thing was the label was never run on profit. I never made a penny out the label because the music I was putting out was a bit strange. Admittedly, some of the bands started blowing up, but then it became a nightmare. But mm. generally it, it was run for purely creative reasons. And I was making a living doing design from other people. So I didn't have to run it as a business per se. It is what it is. To move on from that and go back to the record sleeve design, yeah. is that something you still you actively work with bands? I've been spending a lifetime trying to break away from music design, but I still get sucked back into it. And I kind of enjoy it. I'm starting even to work with artists now that I would never maybe have thought of working with before. But I've realized that if I can work with an artist whose music I'm maybe not a massive fan of, or it's not part of my culture, but I can do something great for them, that's a challenge. And it's highly satisfying to do that. So I'm trying to broaden out a little bit, you know. I suppose from a creative point of view, that weirdly makes sense, right? Because why work with like your clique, your group of people when you you can... You know, sometimes I think they're thinking, I'm working on a project at the moment I can't really talk about. I'm like, when people find out I've done it, they're going to think, what a sellout. But hopefully I'm going to do something really good with it. And I think things have changed now. I think people understand in a different way. The fact is I've never been a snob about music, if I'm honest. Like when Kylie Minogue bought out slow or something i played that record i've always loved good pop music if something's good it's good i love bad boys movie i I, you know i I love cheesy ass popcorn films but at the same time you know i go and see four and a half five hour silent russian black and white you know i'm really open to everything so i'm not a snob you've also worked with fashion brands clothing brands you did that stone island thing that was that was like 2008 or nine or something yeah i've worked with stone island quite a lot yeah I did three collections with Stone Island around that time. What did you do for them exactly? Stone Island for me, I was really into Massimo Osti. I was obsessed by his work, right? And when the opportunity came to work with them, they invited me to Italy to go to the factory. I mean, their archive is insane yeah. in terms of their printing techniques and their dye. So I went there and I had an idea about doing a series of garments that basically just break down the colour. You know, you look at the colours, how they're made up. I saw the charts. They're made up of like 25 different chemicals and stuff or... And so I did a whole collection basically. You had a red T-shirt and it just showed how the colour red was made or a black or a blue. So that was one collection. Another collection was had my face on it, which I didn't want to do, which is a whole bitmap thing. I did a whole load of stuff broken down, taking the Stone Island logo and digitising it and bitmapping it. It was an honour to mm. work with them. I've always been more interested in style than fashion. Fashion doesn't interest me so much, but style and great design does and Stone Island for me personify growing up they did when I worked with them and they still do very important mm, yeah absolutely and actually maybe even more so back when you did that because they weren't such a brand of the now as they are today perhaps I was brought into it working through with my friends Nick Griffiths and Simon Foxton yeah so you know and Simon one of the best stylists in the world you know they've been a huge part of moving away from what it, it was perceived as into a very different thing. Mm. Yeah, no, for sure. They've partly made that brand into what it is today. Yeah, totally. More recently, you did a T-shirt capsule collab collection for Goodhood. Yeah, Goodhood around the corner. They're friends of mine. And that was when I launched my website. I just did a, a I did an archive collection, taking four designs from my archive, which I was meant to continue. And I've been trying to build a shop on my website for a long time. I'm going to start doing a bunch of stuff on my shop. Right. Clothing-based, you mean? Or yeah. Just yeah, yeah. general? A bunch of stuff, but specifically some clothing things based yeah. on various designs from my archive. I mean, that's actually, for me, it's kind of like how I, probably the first times I met you was when I was working in either Browns or Dover Street, selling you undercover t-shirts. Yeah, for me, undercover, like, Junior, the master. 
as I said, I don't have a great interest in fashion, but his love of music, you know, really connects with me from his collection based on can things. And now, you know, working with Tom York, I'm a big fan of this uh, Japanese producer called Mars 89. And there's an undercover record. He's put out a record this week, actually, which is a Mars 89 record remixed by Zombie, Lojack and Tom York. Oh. So yeah, undercover, I've got a big undercover collection and I, I love his work. Recently, of course, June has done a lot of um, film-related work. Yeah, yeah, with the Kubrick collection stuff. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You, are you into that? Yeah, I mean, I've always been into Japanese labels, right? So, you know, I mean, I've always been to undercover and Visrim, right? But the fact is they're just unaffordable now. And I personally, I earn a fairly good living, but I'm not spending £250 on a t-shirt. I'm just no. not doing it. So sadly, unless there's something really killer, I have to have. Whereas before, I'd go into Dover Street and I'd buy three or four T-shirts from the collection. I just can't justify that, you know, sadly. Mm, that's fair enough. To go back to, you know, your former um, groups and record labels, etc. do you miss having that way of expressing yourself? I mean, you talked about all the kind of like downsides to running a label. Yeah. And also how you sort of have the radio show now almost to kind of like not replace it, but to push out music. Yeah. But do you miss that to, to have a band like Playgroup yeah. uh, is a very precise, you know, way of, of putting out, putting things out, right? Yeah. Is that, is that something you well, no, but you, got, you remember spent the past three, four years releasing my archives. So I've done that. And that was great in terms of I could design record seats for myself. I didn't have to get approval from anyone. I could take as long as I want. I didn't release the records till I had a great concept. The Playgroup reissue stuff or unreleased project I did I released a series of nine EPs over nine weeks with a photograph by Bill Bernstein and they all fitted together like a jigsaw. And I couldn't have done that for another artist, but I did it for myself. Mm. I'm going to make new music and I'll put out that new music myself. I'm in a unique position that I can do that. It's frustrating. It's, I'm probably the worst client I could ever have. <laughs> but having a record label per se and doing stuff for other people, I really feel I've spent so much of my life helping, supporting, promoting other people Apart from the radio show, now is a time I need to focus on myself. Mm. You know? Well, ironically, of course, the radio show is it's predominantly about promoting others. So. Yeah, but a radio show is two days out of my life every fortnight. It's yeah. kind of, once the radio show's done, I don't have any further commitment to any of the artists I play. It's very satisfying. I have some kid contact me saying, how the hell did you find my record? Only one other person's bought it on Bandcamp. And I trust me, I dig deep. Mm. And that's really satisfying. But I don't have any other commitments to anyone I play, you know. The music you played, you mentioned the 50 songs that you get to play. It's taken from a total of 250. Yeah. You also said, you know, people send you stuff, but you don't not so keen on, you know, playing promos all day long. So, yeah. you know, where do you find that music? I mean, milk crating, is that something you do? A lot of it is, I use Boomcat, which for me is the greatest record store in the world, probably. And so I do a lot of digging on Boomcat and also Bandcamp now, which is, People don't know it's a digital music site where artists can sell their own records. So anything you pay to them, they get 100% of the, well, not 100% of the profit. I think Bandcamp take 10% or something. Right. But the money goes directly to them. And for me, it's intrinsically important to keep supporting the culture. Very often I end up buying records I'm sent as a promo anyway, because when you're sent promos, it's laborious for me to go through all my emails. The way you listen to me is quite hard and you have to give feedback before they send it back. So I'm like, forget it. I'll just go and buy the record. Mm. And so between Bandcamp and Boomcat, and record shop, physical record stores, Rough Trade and Fonica and uh, other places. I, you know, I, I, I love digging and searching for new music, you know? Sometimes the, the looking for is rewarding as finding it, right? As I said, you know, I, because I'm concentrating on new music, I've got all the old records I want that I know about, most of them. 
I just find it highly satisfying to be able to find something new and honestly be able to push and promote that artist and help them. People have been very supportive to me throughout my career. And if I can give something back, mm. to, that's highly satisfying, you know, it's really rewarding. Another thing that you often talk about on social media, except for oh. pissing people off, is, is films. 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 You're very, very into to cinema. Sadly, since my son was born, I've, I've been to cinema so few times. Yeah. It's, it's tragic. Right. I, I adore cinema. Like the one thing, if I wasn't doing what I want to do, I've always wanted to direct, you know? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, because obviously you made short films, right? Like you've I've worked made, with... moving it. Yeah. 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 Let's phrase it like this. You know, if you weren't doing what you were doing now, yeah. would you want to be like a, you know, directing feature films, for example? Yeah, without a doubt. But I probably want to be directing experimental films. Films in the same sort of vein of your music, you know, challenging and... and yeah. I mean, for me, I want to feel challenged sonically, visually. I want to feel challenged, 100%. Mm. You know, I'd want to do things that affect people in some way. I'd want to do things that are powerful and affect people and maybe piss people off, but to say, hey, I'm not in a Gaspar Noe way. No, yeah, I'm but you want like a response from someone, whether that's like love, hate, yes, no, there's a response anyway. It's a well, genuine... I think the, thing, the, the problem is now, it's hard to pick up on subtlety now. A lot of things fall through the net that I probably need to listen to. I just think about musically, but it's worse with film with everything, that I maybe need to live with a little bit longer And I don't have the time to do that. So it's often things that are more immediate to me, which kick through. When it comes to film, it doesn't always work for me. Some of my favorite films are maybe films that aren't so immediate. Mm. But um, it's difficult at the moment. And the main reason I haven't done film is because I think the amount of time I've got to commit to it at this point in my life, do I really want to commit three, four, five years of yeah. my life to maybe to something properly, which, which, which I could be doing creating at the same time. I could make 10 albums and do hundred other projects, you mm. know. Yeah, it's, they're quite lengthy projects, aren't yeah. they? Quickly, I want to go back to, you know, we started off the conversation really just talking about DJing. Which is weird because I didn't want to talk about it and then that's the first thing I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, yeah. you brought that up, but now I am because listening to one, not the one you did just now, but like maybe one or two weeks ago yeah. on NTS, you yeah. were actually saying that you're going to stop DJing. Yeah, I am. I am definitely. I, did my, I think I did my last gig in Barcelona yeah. a couple of weeks ago that I do for a long time, yeah. For a long time. So you haven't like... I'm not going to say I've, my career is over, but A, in terms of having a young child now, you know, I go to bed at nine o'clock most evenings, wake up at five. Yeah. The times I have DJed, it screwed up my week so badly. Yeah. Right? So there's that. 100% in terms of the ecological... I don't want to be flying all over the world now. There's no need for me to do that. I have an electric car now. And the music I necessarily play... I don't know if I can pack out a club of a thousand people playing a particular kind of music. The music I play maybe hasn't got a big audience. I don't know. Mm. Well, I think all of those make sense. Yeah. Right? And it's essentially what we've been saying now for an hour is that, you know, the, the music that you want to play yeah. isn't maybe necessarily what people want to hear. And also it normally comes up in most conversations, Trevor Jackson, DJ, and I'd rather people talk about the other things I do for a while. So I think that this is a good way of, of uh, summarizing it then. Like, is there something like a project that you are particularly proud of? What is it that you sort of see as your maybe biggest achievement, you know, personally, uh, that you put the most in and got the most out from? I think the format show I did with Vinyl Factory, for me, you know, whether that was four years ago or something, it's probably the most important show I've ever did because I think I managed to get the audiovisual balance correct. Yeah. I think what I was trying to say in terms of, how the ritual of playing music, of searching for music, is equally as important in some ways as actually the final thing itself. Yeah. Um, and that's not a fetishistic thing. It's, it was more about, you know, trying to say now you have a generation of people that just pick up the phone, press play, they hear the track. Mm. 
the fact of actually having to walk out of your house, go to the record store, speak to someone, pick up the record, take it home, take off the shrink wrap, take it out, turn your... There's a whole process to that. And without a doubt, you know, talking about these 250 digital tracks I have for my record show, radio show, the ones I buy on vinyl are the ones that stick with me more, the physical things I hold in my hands do. And so I think the format show, that was probably, for me, the highlight of my career. Mm. I like the idea of creating experiences, physical experiences, you know, and that's the one thing that actually about DJing that I do enjoy when it's going right, when you're in control of the music and it connects with people, it's a hugely powerful thing that I don't feel in any other thing I do. Mm. And so if I could create physical experiences for people like you know the format show people have to walk into that space listen to my album in a particular way i would love to try and do more things that work in a visceral physical way you know perfect well thanks for coming on the show pleasure man it's easy to be inspired when talking to people like trevor jackson his multidisciplinary and continuous creativity has created an audiovisual legacy that spans three decades. Some of it with mainstream success and some of it avant-garde and niche. It's the ability to keep both those careers going and to continue to find the world around you exciting that makes him stand out. Personally, and maybe it's just me, but to have that constant thirst for newness and to go out hunting for it, never mind showcasing it publicly on a radio show every other week, is what impresses me the most. But maybe that's the best way to stay connected, to always go looking for it, and at the same time put yourself out there for your work, opinions and choices. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.